and welcome to the third episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. In this episode, we interview Surgeon Commander Adrian Meller on altitude and its effects on the body. We also focus in on his recent innovative work exploring the role of wearable technology in predicting and diagnosing high-altitude illnesses. Surgeon Commander Meller is a cardiothoracic anaesthetist by background, but also an altitude expert. He led the 2016 British Services Dalagiri Medical Research Expedition in Nepal, counting the fact that he got all 140 participants safely through the arduous trip as one of the proudest moments of his career. This is no mean feat when you hear his tales about having to sprint in crampons, fully laden, when an avalanche released above the team's heads at 5,500 metres. Surgeon Commander Mella's ideal Sunday afternoon would involve a journey, whether that be finding headspace climbing on his own, trail running across the moors with friends, or on a bike ride with his daughter. When we asked what he attributed his success to, we were intrigued to learn that he put it down to the resilience he's built up from mountaineering, citing that he credited this resilience in helping him through quite a few knocks both personally and professionally, and he stressed the importance of service personnel taking up opportunities for AT for this very reason. Without further ado, on to the podcast. We really hope you enjoy it. Firstly, uh, thank you for joining us. So to set the scene, can you explain in plain terms why ascending to altitude is a challenge for the body? Yeah, so with altitude, the atmospheric pressure reduces. As the atmospheric pressure reduces, there is less air. Uh, 21% of that air is oxygen, which we need. So as you go higher, there's less oxygen. That's physics and it's entirely predictable. So that at the top of Mont Blanc, there's about half the oxygen that there is at, at sea level. By the time you're at the top of Everest, there's about a third of the oxygen. Um, obviously, we are used to a, adapted to really sea level living. So there is then a big change in your oxygen level um, to the extent that if you suddenly went to the top of Everest, um, be like a plane depressurizing, you would collapse within two or three minutes. But over a period of time, you can adapt. Um, and those adaptations are things like heart rate going up, breathing rate going up, your body then resetting its chemistry and pH to be able to maintain that high breathing rate without CO2 dropping to such a level that you stop breathing. Um, and changes at a cellular level, some of which are understood and a lot of which aren't understood. And that means that over a period of time, people can adapt to astonishingly low oxygen levels. So that at 5,000 metres, saturations of 80% are completely normal if you're well. Um, and there was a set of blood gases or five sets of blood gases taken at 8,000 metres on Everest showing a, a PaO2 at the lowest of around uh, three kilopascals. So about a quarter of what we would normally operate at, at sea level. And let's say, for example, one of our listeners was, was, was walking up a mountain and got to three or 4,000 metres and started to develop um, altitude sickness what would that manifest as? What would it look like? There's really several different subgroups of acute mountain sickness or, or high altitude illness. Um, but acute mountain sickness, which is the commonest one, and it's so common to be almost um, ubiquitous if, if you go to high altitude quickly. Um, and that tends to really only occur after a period of time. So you feel fairly lousy as you're climbing, but you're short of breath because your oxygen levels are low. Um, what happens then if you stop and rest, most people will recover their breathing rate, things will settle down and at rest they'll be fine. For a subgroup of people then they develop the symptoms of acute mountain sickness, which is essentially like a hangover. So you're off your food, you're feeling lousy, you're feeling sick, you have a headache yeah. um, and you know, you're know you kind of unable to function really. 
Um, usually over 24 hours that will get better. Um, so hence the the slow acclimatization rate, climb to a new altitude, wait, rest there for a bit. Um, once you've been at that new altitude for 24 hours, you're probably not going to get acute mountain sickness. And then you can go on, climb a bit higher, giving your body time to adapt. There are other more, more lethal forms of altitude illness with cerebral and pulmonary edema. Um, they tend to come on usually if you've developed acute mountain sickness first. So recognising the acute mountain sickness is the important thing or recognising the, the symptoms of, of pulmonary edema, um, which is the, probably the biggest killer at altitude, but, but relatively unusual, um, certainly below about 4,000 metres. Okay. And so why is study of altitude sort of relevant to, to the military in particular? Well, I think certainly the evidence from from the early days in Afghanistan when we were uh, in the mountains on Opjikana um, was people were trying to operate at about 3,000 metres, being flown into 3,000 metres. Now, 3,000 metres, your baseline saturations at rest would be about 88%. Um, so then trying to do hard exercise, carrying the mm. sort of burden you can carry at sea level, you know, would be more difficult. That was relatively poorly quantified but certainly from the people I've spoken to who were there in a Royal Marine ML role it was a very real thing. The Americans about 10% of their Kazivaks from that stage in Afghanistan were altitude related so it is it's a real documented problem. Um, a lot of the dangerous places in the world are at high altitude and in terms of future conflicts if sea level rises if there's less water in the world there's going to be water in the mountainous areas um, there's going to be minerals and deposits in the mountainous areas because they haven't been tapped. So, you know, it's certainly something we should be aware of mm. and potentially ahead of the game on. So what are the key questions in high-altitude medicine that are the, the sort of focus of our research efforts at the moment? So uh, we've mainly focused on ways to predict acclimatisation or acute mountain sickness. In the kind of hypothesis being that if we were putting and it would only ever be small unit you know small numbers of troops but to try and work out who's acclimatized who's not acclimatized who's at danger of going higher and who's not going to um perform as well as they might by going higher um and then effectively personalize acclimatization programs Mm, okay and is diagnosis a problem? Is it something that's a research effort or are there current scores, the Lake Louise score and things, for yeah, example, good uh, enough? Uh, no, I mean, the, the, the problem is that there is no gold standard test for acute mountain sickness. Uh, I suspect there's a number of different forms that are labelled acute mountain sickness that probably aren't even the same thing. And to some extent, it doesn't matter because we know you don't acclimatise well if you've just got a viral illness mm. as opposed to full-blown acute mountain sickness. The, there are scoring systems, but really the scoring systems exist just to get consistency for research. Okay. Um, and interestingly, a big review published recently showed that the clinical function score, which is basically naught to four, whether or not you're able to function normally or whether or not you can do nothing other than stay in bed as a scale, uh, is just as good as the Lake Louise score, the AMSC score or any other score. So the scores for consistency for research but actually the, the important thing in terms of have you got altitude illness or not is are you functioning? So when it comes to researching the effects of altitude, there's clearly a couple of options, um, field studies or, or putting subjects in chambers and lowering the oxygen content. Now clearly chamber studies are, uh, are logistically simpler, but as we've discussed, getting altitude sickness is, is a fairly slow process involving a complex interplay of the environment and activity, which is, is clearly difficult to replicate in a chamber. 
So let's talk about your most recent large-scale field study, the British Services Dalagiri Research Expedition in, in early 2016, where you undertook eight research projects with 129 service personnel. Uh, firstly, did you get to the top? Uh, of Dalagiri itself, no. We got um, four people to 7,500 metres. Wow. Um, where they had a fairly torrid time uh, and we never got the weather window. We were trying to climb without oxygen in a fairly pure style, uh, style yeah. um, and we didn't get the weather window to uh, to get to the top. And, and can you give us a brief resume of sort of the key findings of those research projects? So, so the projects we had ongoing, we had um, all manner of stuff really, some biomechanical data being collected by researchers at Leeds Beckett. Um, we had some data being collected about diet uh, and um, blood glucose levels Um, and that was quite interesting so for the first time ever we showed that there is a change in gut hormones at altitude. We had studies going on looking at um, heart rate changes at high altitude both in terms of heart rate variability at rest but also with implantable devices so we were able to record a single lead ECG with really, really good fidelity as people were climbing. Mm. Um, and interestingly, that captured quite a few long pauses of up to about seven seconds. In, and so, <laughs> so the and heart quite frequently, so the heart would stop. Gosh, worrying finding. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on uh, from, from the experimental design and picking up on your point about measuring heart rate variability. Uh, and now we're going to talk a little bit about wearable sensors and their role in not just altitude, but hopefully related to other extreme environments. So first of all, what is a wearable and and what can they measure of interest to you at the moment? Um, To me, in terms of what is a wearable technology, it is just something that people can have on that's sitting there in the background collecting data, collecting physiological data. Um, Now that could be an Apple Watch, it could be a heart rate sensor, heart rate strap, I think more interesting and more um, kind of intriguing for the future is what can be done without anything as intrusive even as a watch or a strap. Mm. Um, So we actually had implanted small ECG monitors, um, which were, you know, needed a local anaesthetic and a small injection, a small uh, operation effectively to implant them. Um, But once they were there, they were seamlessly collecting heart rate data, Mm. though that same technology could collect other things like, you know, blood pH, um, lactic acid, things like that, which could be really, really interesting. So that's the kind of high tech end. I guess at the low tech end, it is the watches, the Fitbits, um, the heart rate straps and collecting that data to, you know, enable us to to work out whether or not people are adapting at at the rate we like. And and obviously you mentioned earlier that on your recent trip, on the Dalagiri expedition, you guys measured heart rate variability. Can you talk about what that is in the simplest term and why you chose it? We know the heart speeds up and slows down with breathing cycles. Um, that's governed by the autonomic nervous system, so your sympathetic and, uh, and vagal tone. Um, and that changes depending on how stressed you are physiologically. Uh, and how well rested you are and how stressed you are in terms of anxiety mm. levels uh, and athletes have been using it for quite some time to record rather than just resting baseline heart rate resting heart rate variability which is a more sensitive test which shows when they've recovered from a hard training session okay. predicts when they might be getting a viral illness and they should take it easy um, so I think for me at, at high altitude the reason I'm interested in that is that you know whether or not you believe acute mountain sickness is is one distinct disease entity 
um, doesn't really matter. If your heart rate variability shows you are physiologically under stress, you are not adapting. It doesn't matter whether it's a viral illness, whether it's just anxiety, or whether it's acute mountain sickness. The, the answer is rest until your heart rate variability recovers. Um, so that was the, the kind of the angle we were coming at, really. And so you, you published a paper earlier this year on, on exactly this, and you looked at answering the questions, can baseline heart rate variability predict whether you get acute mountain sickness, but also does heart rate variability diagnose it once you've got it? And how, how good was it at these two, two things? Um, it was reasonably good. Now, again, it had, I think there has to be a caveat on any of this saying it's very difficult to diagnose acute mountain sickness. But yeah. using the Lake Louise score as the test, um, you know, we were able to, to predict that a fall in your heart rate variability um, tended to suggest you were likely to be developing acute mountain sickness. Um, and also those with a lower heart rate variability had a small tendency towards more severe acute mountain sickness. Now that is perhaps not ever so surprising because your heart rate variability goes along with physical fitness. So if you've got a higher heart rate variability, you're probably more physically fit. You therefore might be working less hard to achieve the same point on okay. the mountain. So if you've got heart rate variability, what other data sources would you want to incorporate in an AI algorithm to fill in the missing bits of that picture? Physiological data, I think the stuff we can look at in terms of pulse oximetry may have an influence. I don't think the data has been good enough to show that yet, but if we were collecting it on a on a big packet of people. Um, and, and I think perhaps heart rate, again, heart rate is very interesting because we know your heart rate needs to increase to acclimatise, but is there a pathological cutoff in that change in heart rate? Okay. Um, so fairly basic physiological data, I think. I think the other thing that artificial intelligence could do because of its number crunching ability is pull in atmospheric data also you know anxiety levels possibly have an interplay so so wind rain bad weather on the mountain might alter anxiety levels might alter acute mental sickness okay uh, so there's there's lots of, of bigger data that could be pulled in that isn't normally looked at as part of the traditional scoring systems yeah that's really interesting um, and and limitations to using wearables obviously you've you've had some experiences with heart rate variability do they? How do you manage the battery life and things? Do they break? What, what? Yeah, I mean, I think actually, on the hill doing. I mean, we were using our phones. We had lots of charging facilities at, at base camp, um, and we were using them more on the acclimatization phase where charging was easier. Mm. Uh, once you're actually on the mountain proper, then it's very difficult. And I think that's where the implantable heart rate monitor or ECG monitor was very good because mm. it sat under the skin. It didn't get in the way of anything. Um, and it, you know, it sat there for months. They'll, they'll stay in patients for up to three years. Okay. So, uh, you know, you don't have any degradation of the sensor. It works. It does its job. You forget about it. We have used other patches to measure heart rate variability, um, but like any kind of dressing, they've got to stick on your body when you're in a fairly yeah. horrid, sweaty, minging state for much of the expedition. So, so I think that is fraught with danger. Uh, for difficulties uh, you know the, the real interesting thing is whether they can be woven into fabric uh, whether they can sit we had tri- trialed a pulse oximeter that sat in the band of a baseball cap um, and and got a signal for um, pulse oximetry from you know from the forehead so I think things like that for the future are probably more exciting and to draw this section to a close um, fast forward to 2040 what does the um mountaineer look like with regard to portable technology that he or she is using yeah i think there 
will be more data to allow individualized acclimatization. At the moment, we kind of say no more than 300 meters a day in acclimatization and a rest day every three days. That We know that works for big groups of people in terms of reducing acute mountain sickness. If you were able to say, I know I can make the most of the good weather and go higher today because my app is telling me I've got a green light, then that actually would be really useful for the masses. Mm, of, of course. Now, I've had a couple of questions in on Twitter uh, and we've got time to squeeze one in. So from at Bon Posselt, uh, who's an RAF aviation and space medicine doctor, uh, she asks, is there anything that can speed up acclimatisation to altitude? Uh, that is another strand of the research we've been looking at. And there is, it's tempting to think that you could just go into a chamber and you could expose yourself to low oxygen levels and you would acclimatise. Um, you know, triathletes do altitude training all the time to up their haemoglobin levels. Mm. Uh, Tour de France cyclists live in their bedroom at three and a half thousand metres, you know, in, in wherever it is because they can tweak the, the FiO2 in, in, with, a, with an oxygen scrubber. So it's very tempting to think that will help. There are companies selling it as a commercial part of a high altitude trip. The science for it isn't really there, but I think that's because the science isn't very good as opposed to the technology or the systems aren't very good. Um, so intuitively, yes, I think there are, because it's hard to believe that sleeping in a hypoxic tent won't adapt you to hypoxia. It's not been scientifically proven. We don't know what the right length of time to do that is. We don't know whether or not you need to exercise while you do it. Um, and, you know, I think for the military, that's potentially a really key area that we need to look at because with, with current technology, it would be quite easy to be briefing up your blokes in a room that's at 14% oxygen. So they are getting ahead of the game all the time. Brilliant. Um, to end the podcast, we uh, we always end with a light-hearted section called the Quick Fire Five, which is essentially five questions you're only allowed to answer with one-word responses. Okay. So you ready? Yeah. Good stuff. Um, Firstly, do you wear wearable technology day to day? Sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, which scares you more? Something going wrong in the anaesthetic room or on the mountain? On the mountain. Beetroot juice. Should I drink it as I ascend to altitude to prevent acute mountain sickness? Yes. Ooh. On the mountain, what key item couldn't you live without? As I get older, it's my pillow, but <laughs> <laughs> a, a decent roll mat. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, and what's the key resource, a blog, website, book, paper even, um, that you'd suggest for anyone wanting to learn more about altitude medicine after this podcast? Um, so if you Google UIAA, if you go into there, there is there's briefing notes for the various popular mountains. Uh, there are briefing notes about acute mountain sickness, about intercurrent diseases, um, so actually most stuff is there and it's presented at a, a, a sort of layperson's level really so it's a good start well thank you very much Sir Commander Mella for taking the time to, to chat with us today we really appreciate it um, to our listeners keep an eye out on our Twitter at Podcast Medicine for links to articles and resources related to what we've discussed today as well as that link and don't forget to reflect on the contents of the podcast for your CPD